Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. It is as if you want to give your head a shake. In the middle of the pandemic, more people wanted to join a union. In fact, the number of those wanting to join a union peaked when the pandemic was at its height. My next guest is not surprised. She would argue that there's lots of people who want to join unions. It's just that it's really hard to do that these days. Professor Stephanie Ross, along with her colleague Professor Larry Savage, recently wrote an article explaining many of the barriers people are facing trying to join a union. Ross, who is an associate professor and director at the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University, suggested the pandemic has people rethinking their relationships towards their work and their employers. The results could be some sizable shifts, and there is lots of evidence in Northumberland to suggest she is right. Here is my interview with Professor Stephanie Ross. I'm so pleased to have with me today Professor Stephanie Ross, the Associate Professor and Director of the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. Welcome to Consider This. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You recently wrote an article for The Conversation Canada called The Advantages of Unionization Are Obvious. Why don't more people join unions? Why write about this topic now? Well, there's a a couple of reasons. I mean, it is an enduring topic. Uh, You know, we in Canada have had a unionization rate of around 30% for most of the last uh, 40 years. And that since the 1990s, uh, you know, our unionization rate has sort of been stuck at that level. And, you know, there's been a lot of economic and social change in that period. Um, a lot of um, uh, issues around the growth of economic inequality, around job loss, around the restructuring labor market. And so it kind of raises the question, well, how, why isn't it that over this period of time, we haven't seen a growth in unionization as a way to respond to a lot of those issues that are creating some pretty significant dislocation in, for people in their, in their personal lives and their ability to earn income, their ability to have a, um, a stable life based on, uh, on good jobs. So it is kind of an enduring topic. Um, of course, as most people will know, Labor Day is coming up. And so that is also obviously uh, a moment in the year to reflect on uh, questions of labor, employment, on workers' um, rights and dignity. But we also are living in a very specific moment right now um, with respect to the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic and you know, responses that employers and governments have, um, have had to that pandemic. 
uh, and its impact on work and on the organization of work, on the, on the way that labor markets are functioning, uh, the way that people who've been pushed out of work are being supported, uh, whether that's adequate or not. And also like what's happening in the workplace as people, some people are, are um, still employed, obviously um, quite, essentially so, in order to keep society going. And the, the issues that those workers are facing, um, particularly essential workers, but also you know, workers in a whole variety of jobs that are now being done remotely, there are all kinds of dynamics that are taking place at work that um, raise the question of what difference unionization makes to helping people navigate uh, and be protected from the, the worst impacts of the pandemic on their working lives and, of course, on their personal lives, their financial security, etc. So we thought that it was a good moment to, to raise this issue again um, and to, to maybe review some of the conventional wisdom about why um, people aren't unionized, but also maybe to add something different to that conversation, um, to get people thinking about um, why, why uh, it actually is quite difficult, uh, even in Canada, for workers who want to unionize to get unionized. In, in, in the last 40 years, it's become more difficult. You've said a lot of things that I, uh, deserve to be unpacked, so let, let's start to get down into the weeds. Um, can you describe what you see as the benefits of belonging to a union and tell us, based on that, why is it it's so few do not belong? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I mean, we, we generally call this phenomenon the union advantage. Uh, so it's very clear we can demonstrate statistically that um, unionization means that, you know, on the bread and butter side, people make higher wages than their non-union counterparts. They are much more likely to have access to extended benefits like dental care, vision care, pensions, um, a host of other kinds of benefits. Um, as, if you look at um, Statistics Canada data in 2020, um, the average hourly wage for people who were covered by a union contract was $32.66 an hour. For non-union folks, that their average wage is $28.08 an hour. So that's 28% more in wages if you are unionized. It doesn't, that doesn't necessarily take all of the various kinds of factors um, into play, but as a, as a sort of a large scale understanding of the difference, um, it gives us a bit of a picture. And if you, if you look more specifically at wages according to different categories of workers, the union advantage is even greater. The more disadvantaged a group of workers is in the labor market for various reasons, the greater the advantage is of being unionized. So if you look at temporary workers, the difference between their wages is you know, $29 an hour uh, unionized versus 20 an hour non-unionized. So it's 39% more uh, if you're a temp worker who is unionized. Um, if you look at women, if you look at racialized uh, people, if you look at young people, um, all of those folks um, who also experience other forms of discrimination in the labor market are benefit from a greater advantage to unionization. So there's some 
some equity uh, aspects to unionization that are really important, that, that unions actually create more equity between men and women, between white workers and racialized workers, um, et cetera, because they tend to standardize uh, and flatten wage hierarchies. Um, and they take the arbitrariness out of the way that good things and bad things are distributed in a workplace. Um, so I'd say the second major advantage under, um, under unionization is one that's a little bit more difficult to, uh, to show with statistics, but it's that uh, workers who are unionized have a capacity to collectively shape and regulate the rules by which they are governed in their workplace. So there's a there's a an ability to have some meaningful voice and say over their working conditions, and that that the law backs that say up with legal union status. And it means that people aren't isolated and played off against each other in the way that often is the case in a non-union environment. Um, and so, and people can speak up about problems in their workplaces with less fear of reprisal, uh, less fear that the employer is gonna punish them for speaking up or raising concerns or uh, raising criticisms. Um, in other words, unions make the workplace more democratic. Uh, they give workers uh, a voice that um, isn't just sort of at the behest of the employer. Like if the employer's feeling nice, uh, maybe they will do certain things in the non-union workplace if they, they decide it's a good idea. But, but unions allow workers to have some, uh, some power behind their voice and some protection when they use that voice. Um, and that's something that I think a lot of people are increasingly experiencing that 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 lack of uh, say or power over their working conditions uh, and that I think is what's driving people to think uh, and to consider unionization as a response to a lot of the problems that they've been subject to and that have really intensified in the period of the pandemic. I can imagine when employers would be hearing what you're saying, they would be quite agitated, um, especially when you're talking about higher wages, because we always hear any time that there's a wage increase that we can't afford it and, there, and this, and also too, the democratization of the workspace uh, or workplace would, would equally cause great consternation to those. What do, you, what do you say to employers when you talk like this? Well, I think you're right that, that these are questions of power, um, you know, and unions for sure, they, they, they challenge the notion of who should have power and control and say in our workplaces. And uh, to some extent, it the, the, the presence of a union does mean that employers have to share power. And it's interesting that, you know, in a society which we consider democratic, you know, we do have all kinds of norms around all kinds of other institutions where that you know, decisions should be made democratically. But in some ways, the workplace is the exception to that. We actually accept a lot of hierarchy and in some ways authoritarianism in our workplaces. 
um, we accept that you know an employer has a kind of unilateral right to to decide what happens to people who are working for them, and you know in some ways that is a that is an undemocratic principle, and so you know it's a contradiction in our society. So I, I can't say that it isn't a challenge to many employers. That being said, unionization and the and the sharing of power that comes with that actually has a lot of other benefits for employers as well as workers. Um, there is a lot of evidence that uh, workers who feel that they have more say over their workplaces are more invested in those workplaces. They uh, are much more likely to contribute to those workplaces. They are more likely to be more productive, which is something that all employers want. Um, and they, they are uh, they are more likely to help employers solve problems that emerge in the workplace. And like those are those are things that um, that people don't really think about when they think about unions. They think because the, the popular culture image of unions is that and, and it's because we usually only talk about unions when conflicts emerge in those workplaces. Right. We 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 see unions in the media when uh, workers go on strike. And so we assume that uh, that bringing a union means conflict, conflict, con conflict all the time. Well, the conflicts are always there in the workplace. The union is a tool to uh, to sh to shape and uh, manage and express that conflict in ways that, in some ways, are quite productive. And we only see those outbursts of conflict when people come at an impasse. Uh, very rarely in the overall numbers of unionized relationships and collective agreements that are being negotiated, about two to three percent of, of collective agreements that are being negotiated every year, um, you know, result in a strike. And so, you know, we get a false image of the amount of conflict that's involved uh, in uh, unionized workplaces. Uh, as though those conflicts don't exist in non-unionized workplaces. They do. They're just expressed differently. They're organized differently, and perhaps in ways that are a bit more unequal and dysfunctional, I would argue. What factors often sway people towards wanting to unionize and why? Yeah. Well, I, I think that there's a lot of debate about that. There, there isn't really a... Uh, uh, as much consensus over why people unionize as um, uh, the benefits of unionizing, where we can sort of show those, those uh, benefits statistically. Um, there's one set of reasons that are about the sort of negative conditions in the workplace. So, uh, you know, when often it's said that uh, it's management that organizes unions, right? If you've got management that's quite um, uh, that's quite uh, authoritarian, that's quite arbitrary, uh, that treats people poorly, that creates what we sometimes call a hot shop, where right? people are very discontented. And so it's sort of anger that motivates people. But the flip side of that is the desire for dignity. And I think that the research uh, increasingly shows that what people want at work is to be treated with dignity and respect. It's not actually money that drives uh, unionization as much as it is the desire to be treated with respect. 
And I think that that's why when we see hot shops emerge where people are really angry and upset about how they're being treated, it's not so much about the money. Uh, it really is about being treated unfairly. Uh, it's about being treated um, as children or with disrespect. Um, that's what people desire with unionization. And, um, you know, I think that that's actually a that's a very positive thing. Like we, of we are, we, we are deserving of dignity and respect in a space where we spend so much of our lives, right? Why should we, why should we be curious or think it's strange that workers would want to be treated well in their in the in the in the places where they spend the vast majority of their lives and which are so important to the their ability to have a dignified life outside of work, um, you know. And I think that that's becoming more and more obvious today, where uh, in a lot of workplaces during the pandemic we've seen um, an increase in disrespect of workers actually. Um, and that that's creating certain kinds of tensions that are leading people to raise questions about, do I want to keep working in this workplace? If I do, or if I have to, what do I, what do I do to stop being treated like a tool or an object um, and not having my full human dignity being recognized by my employer? I want to come back to the impact of the pandemic, but before we get there, um, there's one last thing I'd, I'd sort of like to explore before we get right into the weeds, and that is um, the the role of government in unionization and also the use of labor laws by employers to discourage unionization. Can you, using some examples in Canada, uh, explain how these laws work and how employers are leveraging these to uh, discourage unionization? Mm -hmm. Well, we do in Canada have a, a, a legal framework that on paper is meant to encourage and support unionization. Um, and, you know, for people who are not unionized, basically that involves uh, a process where a union uh, seeks to figure out whether or not there is sufficient support for a union in a particular workplace. And so usually you have a union drive, you, you get people to sign cards, right? Membership cards, which signal their desire to be a member. And then in most places in Canada, once you reach a certain threshold or percentage of the potential membership of a union in a given workplace, um, usually it's between 40, you know, around 40 percent. That's a, that's enough to signal to the um, the labor board that governs these processes, right? This this government agency that we need a vote to see a secret ballot vote to see whether or not there is majority support for the union amongst this group of workers. Um, and so, you know, on the face of it, that's a you know a kind of a clear and democratic process for figuring out whether or not uh, a majority of workers want to be represented by a union. And once you show that, then the union has certain kinds of rights to represent those workers um, in law and to speak on behalf of them with respect to the employer. But that process is one in which, um, you know, as you pointed out, you know, where many employers don't want 
unions in their midst. They don't want the cost of unions and they don't want to share decision-making power with unions. So they do put a lot of, of effort into uh, averting union drives. And uh, if a union drive emerges in, to try to ensure that a majority won't vote for the union. There's a, I mean, historically in, in Canada and other places, before we had law to regulate this activity, there were a lot of things that employers did uh, all, all the way from kind of psychological manipulation of workers to violence, to prevent, to deter them from unionizing. Um, after the Second World War, we decided collectively that there were certain kinds of things that were going to be offside that, that employers just couldn't do because it would so fundamentally interfere with workers making a free choice about unionization that it was unfair. So violence, uh, for instance, uh, is uh, definitely considered an unfair labor practice. Um, there are a whole number of other things that are considered unfair labor practices and that if employers engage in them, they can be fined and the labor board could do things like certify a union, even though the vote doesn't show that there's a majority support because they can say, well, we don't know uh, if workers really want this union uh, because the employer so tainted the decision making by making people afraid that they couldn't really express their true feelings. And so we're gonna to default to give them the chance to have the union. So, but there's this whole realm of activity that is kind of, I don't know, quasi legal or on the line. It's sort of, it's, it's sort of legal, uh, but it does represent the imbalance of power between workers and employers in this, uh, in this activity. So one thing that employers do is they manipulate the, the, the list of potential employees or people who should be counted as being potential union members in a given workplace. And because the employers have control over that information and the union doesn't, uh, that gives, they have a, a quite significant advantage. So there's a lot of debate about, well, do you really have 30% or 50% or whatever? Depends on how many people are considered employees. So that's a big area of contention. Uh, employers also uh, use strategies, like they can express their views under the law about whether or not they think a union is good. They're not supposed to say things like, if you join a union, you're gonna be punished. Or if you join a union, we're gonna shut this place down. But there are ways to imply that that might happen that kind of skirt the legal restrictions. And we do see that, in, for instance, at the Niagara Casino, uh, there's been five union drives. All of them have been unsuccessful. Um, and one of the things that, uh, that uh, the employer did to fight that union drive is that workers used to be kind of, um, they would come to a par parking lot and they'd have to walk through this tunnel to, get to the casino. So that it was like one entrance for the employees. And the employer lined the uh, tunnel with pictures of factories that had closed. They basically implied that this was a quote, union graveyard. 
that this is what happens if you unionize. You, your, your unionization will lead to a plant closure. Even though, A, there's lots of non-union plants in, in industries that have shut. So we can't really say that if you're unionized, your plant's gonna close. But also a casino is a very different kind of workplace than a, uh, a manufacturing facility that can be easily moved somewhere else. So like, there's all kinds of things that are kind of nonsense about that, but it was enough to make people feel the fear of voting for a union and it was successful. And so there are a lot of those kinds of psychological strategies that employers use that are within the scope of the law, but that create a climate of fear and that um, talk about uh, the, uh, the that, that create a sense of insecurity uh, that exercising this choice will come with consequences. Uh, you mentioned in the article, one of the more aggressive tactics uh, used by Walmart is called the Union Probability Index. Yeah. So can you tell us what that is and how do they use it to prevent uh, unionization? Yeah, so I mean, Walmart is a very famous, um, well-known anti-union employer. They have very few workplaces in North America that are unionized. Um, and, and they are committed to remaining union-free. Um, and so they use a combination of strategies and the union probability index is one. So they, uh, in their stores, they, they, they construct various measures of um, employee morale. And they can be as simple as like, are there posters going up in the break room about like employee organized barbecues and like any kind of hint that workers might be assembling uh, on their own time, or, you know, that might be involving like a space where they're talking about things. Um, th there's a number of other measures uh, that they use to like absenteeism, for instance, uh, that are indicators of, of, of poor employee morale. And so the, the higher the, the UPI, uh, as it gets to a certain threshold, then head office will send a team in to kind of come and shake things up, deal with uh, whatever's happening in the store. So that's a way to try to undercut the kinds of things that they think might be going on. Like, as I said, right, management organizes unions with their bad behavior. So there's a way in which they, are, they, they come in to make sure that um, whatever's going on, that they, they deal with that. They also use some carrots. They have this open door policy where it's kind of an alternative to the union where they have this, this policy, like you can come to us with your concerns. Um, and uh, it's an attempt to kind of replace what, you know, a union uh, steward might do, uh, a, you know, where the workers rep you know, elect a representative to bring concerns to the man to managers about what's going on in the workplace. So it's a way to kind of do that without um, doing it. But the 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 case that we know the most in Canada is that even when those interventions don't work, and sometimes sometimes they don't, and workers still unionized, um, Walmart is willing to shut stores. And so that's sort of the nuclear option in their arsenal. And we saw that in Jean-Pierre Quebec, uh, that uh, a, a union was successfully organized in the store in Jean-Pierre Quebec. 
and Walmart promptly closed it af immediately after. Um, even though Walmart's uh, actions were declared illegal under Canadian law, the damage was done and that store never opened up again. And it for sure created a chill uh, amongst the rest of the work, the Walmart chain uh, in Canada that like, what's the point of unionizing? Because this is what this is what Walmart will do. But I found it interesting in the article that it said that many small workplaces are not of interest to unions. Mm. First of all, why is that? And, and why is that significant? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, I'll start with the second part first. I mean, small workplaces are a significant segment of the labor market, like, and it's a growing segment of the labor market. Like those, that's where most people work, right? Large workplaces are, tend to be unionized and, um, but they are, they are not the sort of typical experience that, that many people have. So most, most people are working in uh, smaller workplaces and it is sort of the growth sector in the economy uh, for lots of years until the pandemic, <laughs> who knows, right? I think in some ways the pandemic really interrupts a lot of these ideas, but anyway, we'll, 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 we'll talk about, you know, pre 2020 for a minute. Uh, so like retail, for instance, is characterized by lots of small workplaces now. Uh, and that's one of the, the service sector, private services, one of the growing, uh, was until then the, one of the major areas of employment growth. So it's a growing part of the labor market, but it is the most difficult to unionize. And it is, it is the, the part of the labor market that is the least unionized. Um, there are a number of reasons for that, both from a, like a, a, a kind of a structural perspective and then from like a union rationale perspective. So small workplaces are harder to unionize because it's, 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 the distance between workers and management is much smaller. And so there are the, the experience of conflicting loyalties is very intense. And I would say too, that, that smaller employers tend to be more, um, so they, they tend to use the, like discourses of family uh, much more to talk about their workplaces. And so they try to create this sense that, no, we're, we're not divided. We're, we're all a family here. We all know each other. We work, we work together in harmony, even though, you know, there's a head of household, right? Um, so that lack of social distance in small workplaces makes it more difficult for a group of workers to kind of say, no, like we, we, we're going to, we're going to unionize and we're going to have we're going to kind of separate ourselves from you. We recognize that we have some conflicts with you that we need to kind of structure and uh, have a structured way to work out. Um, so the emotions that are at play there are very intense. Small employers also tend to be much closer to the bone in terms of um, uh, you know their profit margins, and so they have a, in some ways, more of an incentive to avoid unionization for the reasons we talked about before, right? The union advantage costs money. However, there are many small workplaces that are actually part of big chains, right? Big corporations, like most of the retail that we see in malls. So those those are small workplaces, but they're part of big corporations that could easily afford 
uh, more money, but the fragmentation of those workplaces and the way that our labor relations systems work, like we would certify a union each individual store rather than say, you know, smart set, all of smart set stores in Toronto or all of um, body shop stores in Toronto would be part of the same union. It would be like the body shop at, uh, you know, at the Eaton Centre would be their own union. Um, and that's difficult because it makes it easier for uh, an, a, a large employer to kind of uh, play those uh, different stores off against each other to move people from store to store to undermine the base of the union in a particular store. And that store won't have much bargaining power on its own like with 10, 15 employees. And that leads to the question of like why unions tend not to want to or want to put a lot of energy and resources into organizing those small stores because that store by store strategy is unlikely to result in bargaining units that are gonna have a lot of power. So they are likely to kind of, maybe if you are able to unionize them, there it's hard for them to get a collective agreement because the employer often will have an advantage in that situation they'll they'll um they can serve i mean think about a tim hortons one tim hortons on strike or one you know there's like 10 other tim hortons within you know a five or ten minute drive so there the law has not yet facilitated a kind of a sector-wide strategy for these kinds of workplaces that would make it more meaningful for a union to unionize them and be able to do something meaningful on their on those workers behalf uh, because the structure of those workplaces is such that the employer can shut down a particular location spread the work and the business elsewhere and you can never get the union foothold really well established and so like there's a combination of like employer strategy um uh, a lack of legal enablement or like a lack of a legal framework to uh to facilitate uh unionization across different small locations and then the union saying well wh why are we going to spend all this money trying to organize if we're we know from experience this is going to this unit's going to come and go and we're not going to be able to do anything for these workers in the long run and in some ways you know i i wouldn't want to characterize this as like unions don't want to unionize those workers but they are they, their experience has shown that it is incredibly difficult to do so, and there hasn't been the um, a successful solution developed to actually uh, unionize those workers in Canada because we don't have a legal framework that's that really supports unionization across the different units of, for instance, large uh, large employers that have you know, lots of different stores. So, you know, I think that if, if we did have that legal framework, we would see a lot more unionization in retail, for instance. Um, and that would be a significant uh, uh, contribution to the rate of unionization in Canada. 
Um, mom and pop stores might always be a very difficult nut to crack because you know it, it, those are those are small and one-off businesses. It may be very difficult for for that to be subject to unionization. But there's all kinds of small workplaces, quote small workplaces that are actually part of large corporations that could be unionized if we had a different labor law framework. The pandemic has pointed out a lot of issues within workplaces. And I'm yeah. wondering if from your perspective, you could point out some of the issues that you have seen emerge during this time. For sure, yeah. Um, uh, in, I was uh, in collaboration with uh, a number of other researchers at McMaster. We did do uh, a survey last fall of workers in Ontario to try to see like what impact the pandemic was having on a whole set of um, aspects of their work lives, their income security, and also their you know social uh, and um, psychological health. Um, and the findings from that study, which people can access on the labor studies at McMaster website, it, um, laborstudies.mcmaster.ca under the research tab showed us that um, in summary that you know not surprisingly you know work is becoming less safe and more anxiety producing for the vast majority of people who participated in our study um, and that um, that there was a, an important relationship between the extent to which key safety measures were made in workplaces and whether those workplaces were unionized. So even though people were feeling more anxious and unsafe, uh, unionization may, meant that it was more likely that people uh, were allowed to work from home were provided with uh, protective, personal protective equipment, uh, that more cleaning staff were hired. Um, and so the, even though people felt unsafe, even in unionized environments, and, and probably that's also because lots and lots of essential workers are unionized, right? Like the healthcare uh, workforce is, you know, has a unionization rate in the 70% range. Um, they were also more likely to be able to access safety, uh, safety at interventions at work than their non-union counterparts. So that's one thing that we saw. Um, another thing uh, concerns job loss. And so, you know, a lot of times people talk about how, oh, you know, you, you, of course people don't want unions because if you, if you unionize, you're gonna lose your job. Well, in fact, what we saw in the pandemic was that people who were unionized were much more likely to retain their jobs during the pandemic than those who were not unionized. And this has to do with sector as well, because you know uh, we have a lot of people who are unionized in the public sector, those jobs continue and need to be done. And lots of people in retail and restaurants and you know public, like private services that are public facing that were shut down during the pandemic, but in private in in the private sector, unionized workers were much more likely to uh, to keep their jobs than non-union workers. So there is a job security impact uh, of, uh, 
and and that it, in some ways unionization provided people with a shelter from being booted out of work um, to a greater extent than not having a union. Um, so, you know, those are some key findings. And I would say the third key finding that hinges around sort of unionization and non-unionization is that, well, lots of respondents to our survey told us that they felt that, uh, that some employers were taking advantage of pandemic conditions to push people to work harder to cut people's wages, to engage in behavior that um, they maybe couldn't do in um, pre-pandemic times. And so, um, you know, this is not just exclusive to non-union workers. Many unionized workers reported that their employers were using the pandemic as an excuse to override collective agreements, to bully employees, et cetera. Um, you know, for instance, to deny someone bereavement leave for a parent because there was no funeral arranged because, uh, you know, pandemic restrictions wouldn't allow it. Um, so things like that, that actually cut people quite deeply, I think, um, that sense of, 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 of not being cared about, that became very clear. But we do see in our, in our study that uh, non-union workers were much more likely to have had particular kinds of negative interactions with their employers, um, you know, to, to, to feel like employers were using the insecurity that around um, the labor market, right, job insecurity as a way to extract more effort and exert more power over workers. Um, and non-union workers, of course, have very little ability to push back on that. Um, now, bring that forward to where the just debates that we're having today about um, as we reopen and people, uh, many employers saying that they are finding it hard to find staff, etc. Um, I mean, we don't know yet for certain what all of the pieces of this dynamic are. Um, you know, the, the small business answer, like the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and others of that ilk, like to say it's because that government income supports are too high, right? CERB and CRB is too high. It's keeping people out of the labor market. I think there's something more complex going on here that actually people are reevaluating their uh, work lives and they are reflecting on the treatment that they received from their employers and the, the experiences that they had of um, perhaps being forced to work in conditions that were quite unsafe uh, without much regard to their, their health uh, has led them to, to, to use the exit option and to go to other kinds of jobs or go back to school um, or uh, you know, find other, other uh, futures for themselves and exit in particular the low wage end of the economy. Um, and I think that the treatment that people received is a factor in those decisions. Um, it, we are going to embark on another uh, wave of that study to try to probe those decisions that workers are making in more detail. But I suspect that, that what we will find is that 
people who were not treated well by their employers during the pandemic, they are seeking out alternatives and they are trying to go to better jobs. Uh, and we may see as, um, as the economy normalizes, whenever that's going to be, we may see uh, a wave of unionization, although that it's, it's too early to tell. So exit and unionization, right? Exit, get out, go somewhere better, or unionization, like have voice so I can make what I have better, I think are gonna be two realities that, um, that we're gonna see in this labor market, this post-pandemic labor market for a time to come. Um, and it has to do with uh, that, ex that experience of, 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 of employers perhaps not, uh, they're not thinking about workers and as whole people <laughs> and uh, needing to protect workers um, as much as protect profits. I, I wonder too, though, the amount of strife that you've described between employers and employees and working conditions, a lot of this stuff happens um, underground. We, mm -hmm. we don't see it. You mentioned earlier that the only time we ever see unions or people talk about working conditions it's it's not in the public realm. It's usually at home. We're upset about our job conditions, or we're talking to friends, and and the conflicts Absolutely. between employers and employees happen well out of sight of everybody. And yet, during the pandemic, the public support for essential workers—the grocery store clerks, the nurses, the doctors, the truckers, the emergency services, so on—it it was this big groundswell. And all of a sudden, uh, as a as a society, we became super interested in these people and the important jobs that they did. I mean, the whole industry, you know, whole industries got inverted because suddenly it was the grocery store clerk that was way more important than the president of the company mm -hmm. because they were on the front lines risking their lives mm -hmm. to make sure that we could eat during, you know, this period where we didn't have uh, vaccines and we were mm -hmm. struggling to figure out what to do. Now it's crickets. Yeah. Like you hear nothing. Mm -hmm. How is this indicative of our ideas around work and labor and how we as a society relate to this whole issue of the workplace and mm -hmm. our rights and how we are important or not important? Yeah, that's a really great question. I, um, uh, I think that uh, we do have some it was very interesting to see what you just described, to see the uh, cultural uh, valuation of jobs and people who are generally invisible and, um, uh, and, and coded as unskilled or low skilled and, uh, and therefore kind of under, really deeply undervalued in our society. And it did feel like there was a moment of openness to rethinking some of the assumptions that we have about whose labor is valuable um, and how does our processes of how we value people's labor translate then into like both economic and social status, right? Um, but I think what, those were cultural shifts 
maybe, but also against a backdrop of other deeper, longer standing assumptions about um, the different value of different people's work. And also against the backdrop of, of power structures that are still there, right? And so you still have, um, you know, a really strong concentration of corporate power that, um, and, and an idea that if you own a business that gives you certain kinds of rights that uh, trump other people's rights. Well, let's, and, let, can we explore that for a little bit? Because yeah. I, I really think that's critical in what you've been saying, because mm -hmm. uh, especially what you were saying about people who are now rethinking about going back to work. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I know in our area, you can drive down some streets and there are literally uh, lawn signs we're hiring, we're hiring, big size, mm -hmm. we're hiring. Everybody's hiring right now, yeah. and yet they can't find laborers. And I, yeah. I'm wondering if we're setting up for a, a new tension, mm -hmm. a cultural shift between, mm -hmm. you know, how workers have been treated up until the pandemic and now post-pandemic, where, you know, th there's going to be a serious challenge. Is there going mm -hmm. to, do you see a conflict coming out or a, a cultural shift coming out it doesn't have to be a conflict, but a cultural shift <laughs> yeah. uh, occurring where we start to recognize that we need to start paying people more, mm -hmm. giving longer hours, less precarious work. Um, and, and many yeah. of the things that, that frustrate people in the current labor market. Yeah, I mean, I think the seeds are definitely there for that. Um, and I guess what I would say is that the, the pandemic has been a transformative moment, I think. It has the potential to be a transformative moment in the way that the Second World War was a transformative moment for, um, for Canadian society and many societies around the world, and in particular around the question of labor rights, because it was that moment where people said, hey, I've been sacrificing myself for, for not just for the last six, seven years, but like, say, since the beginning of the Depression, I've been told that I'm fighting for democracy and freedom, etc. But I don't have any of that at home in my workplace. Like, I'm not actually uh, able to benefit from all of this sacrifice and that people were as they came back from the war they were like we're not willing to put up with this anymore and that was when we saw this massive wave of unionization and the labor rights that uh, and labor institutions that we still live with today and so i do think that the pandemic is a is a potential moment for that kind of transformation the the kind of sacrifice that people have engaged in the the ways in which seeing loved ones die uh, and be uh, sickened and perhaps uh, on a in a chronic way, I think has led people to reevaluate. Like, what am I what what am I willing to sacrifice for for a job or for an employer? And the question becomes whether or not people will have uh, will feel like they have the collective courage to insist on something else. I think we do, we are seeing people use their ability to exit uh, bad situations right now. And it gives workers a little bit more power to have more choices. And, you know, people, you know, on the business community side, they're upset about that. But uh, here's the thing, the balance between workers and employers for the last 40 years shifted so far on the side of employers to be able to call the shots 
people, it, like workers in the labor market were so uh, constrained in the choices that they had that stuck in the low wage ends of the labor market. Um, now that there's a little bit of ability to choose something different, and I think a desire to do something, uh, it does really raise questions about the whole structure of the economy that we've been kind of accepting for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And uh, I think that, you know, there is a potential for a reckoning. Employers may need to, and consumers, who are also workers, frankly, consumers may need to accept that if you want to retain workers, you have to pay them a living wage and you have to treat them with dignity. And um, for the time being, uh, workers may have more power to be able to say no, to refuse situations where they're not treated well. Um, whether that, that will remain permanent, uh, it, long enough for um, workers to create some new organizations, to be able to unionize, et cetera, that remains to be seen. But I, I do think that um, people are changed uh, and in going back to the, to the workplace and they, they, it creates a situation of, I think, uncertainty, a lot of potential. Um, and so I wanna be optimistic about it, uh, but you know, there's, a, there's still a lot of unknowns. And if we are now facing down a fourth wave, um, we, there's, there's a lot of history still to be lived before we can know what, um, what impact these events are going to have on people's ideas about work and what they're willing to put up with at work. Interestingly though, I wonder if it, if, I, I don't take away from your point about, you know, the desire to unionize and organize, mm -hmm. but I also wonder uh, if it, if it has to break out of the shadows of our society and 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 we as a society as a whole and i i wonder you know and as listeners are are hearing all of this what is their role because mm -hmm. you know we are so there's such an anti-union feeling among so many people yeah and 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 yet if this is going to happen i think there has to be as there was at the beginning of the pandemic this coalescing uh, of of the public saying, you know, we've got to recognize these people. And, you know, people mm -hmm. were putting up signs, you know, you could drive down the road and, you know, thank you truckers and thank you nurses and healthcare workers and thank you. And, and, and there was this sense, uh, the public was behind this. Yeah. And I wonder to what extent we have to see this breaking out and, and there being a larger support mm -hmm. for this kind of action so that, that people are being are realizing the the aspirations which you've talked about yeah i mean i think that the that people have to it's worth people thinking maybe more self-consciously about uh how the pandemic has affected their views about work and uh that you know i think that's pulled against a desire to go back to you know normal times right like people are People want to, to go back to some normalcy. And um, well, what does normal for some people look like? No, normal, normal means uh, I want to be able to have what I want, consume what I want without, um, without restrictions. And that, you know, that, uh, that kind of individualism as uh, a value and a way of living is still pretty deeply rooted. And so I think you're right, but 
we have a we have a decision to make as a society if we if we say that we value the labor of the kinds of workers that you mentioned uh, we have to also recognize that a big part of those workers reality is that they are either unionized and that is actually something to be celebrated right i mean nurses are like 90 percent unionized uh, you know, that's a huge feature of, of healthcare employment. Uh, same with education. Like, so when it comes time to, uh, to when, when it comes time for those workers to actually engage their employers, which are, you know, public sector employers, for instance, what side is the public going to be on? Like, if we support them as workers, in the pandemic, are we going to support them as workers when they're trying to deal with the aftermath of the pandemic in their workplaces and they need public support? I think we have to we have to move beyond like a cultural valuation of those workers, like a kind of like, you know, beating the pans at seven o'clock at night to like, we're going to put our money where our mouth is. If we support those workers and we value their work, we have to support their struggles to to ensure that their work is valued, safe, et cetera, um, when the time comes. And that can be translated to, you know, when workers make the attempt to unionize as an expression of their desire to have dignity, we have a responsibility to support them, uh, especially if we rely on their labor. Um, we have a moral obligation to support those workers if we think that they are providing us with something that's essential to our lives. It, 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 there's a moral obligation to, to consider, well, if I rely on this person's labor, is it right for me to expect that they do that, that labor under conditions of um, economic hardship and a lack of dignity? Uh, I think that th those are the questions that we have to confront. And if we say, well, no, valuable work people's everyone's work is valuable people should be valued at work people should have dignity at work it, it it does mean then we need to support unions as the main vehicle that workers have figured out helps them be valued and have dignity at work if you could wave a wand and bring about change to the current system what would you want to see done well um you know it's interesting i'd say that there are some labor law reforms that could be made that would make a big difference. Um, uh, for instance, the ability of employers to keep secret who are workers and to manipulate those lists is a big problem. I think that regulation of that and sharing of that information is important. I think that um, the, uh, the lack of a framework for um, sector-wide bargaining is a huge problem. Uh, and that would make a, an enormous difference to thousands uh, of workers in Ontario, if not Canada. Uh, I think that um, we also need to, uh, so I, I would definitely want to see those kinds of changes, but I, I think that there is also a whole number of things that we need to do to improve people's lives, 
that are outside of the workplace or that transcend all workplaces that actually we have figured out how to do um, and that reduce people's economic dependence on work. Um, and that includes much better public services. Um, uh, we do, and that involves a rethinking of issues like taxation. There's an enormous amount of wealth in this country uh, and it is concentrated in very small, a, a small number of hands. And our governments have facilitated that concentration since the 1970s. Um, and I think that we, there is an awareness of that. I mean, I think the discussion of like, you know, uh, billionaires going to space has, has raised that issue in a very pointed way. It's like, if we have millions, billions of dollars sitting somewhere, but we do not have the collective capacity to decide how those resources are going to be used, um, you know, for social good, we, ha we have an obligation then to rethink um, our, our corporate taxation system and not just in a country, country by country basis, but, but at the global level. So, I mean, if I had a magic wand to wave, I think I would, the, one of the first things I would do would be to, to radically alter the corporate taxation system so that we had significantly more money in public hands to be able to invest in our communities, uh, to, to invest in things that we need to create more economic, social, and environmental justice. And uh, I am convinced that the wealth is there and that workers have been creating that wealth uh, with their very hard work. Um, and I think that that would actually address um, uh, the the ongoing uh, crises that we are going to continue to live um, unless we really do rethink those decisions um, and and allow for a rebuilding of um, the public sector that serves the public good. Professor Stephanie Ross. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. That was my interview with Professor Stephanie Ross, Associate Professor and Director of the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca.
That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more from Consider This.